Hi, I'm Marcus Daniel, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molly, your host. I chat to top 50 ATP doubles player, Marcus Daniel. Marcus tells us all about his new non-for-profit venture called High Impact Athletes. We talk about being a vegetarian on the tour, as well as his new role on the ATP Tour Player Council. It's a change up from our regular tennis journey chat, and it's super interesting. If you enjoy the episodes or any of our other 80 plus episodes, please leave us a review on your podcast app. It's rare, I ask, and would greatly appreciate if you did. We have recently launched a YouTube channel where we will host all episodes moving forward. Just search for the Functional Tennis Podcast on YouTube to find us and come say hello. Finally, a shout out to our podcast sponsor, Slinger, who make the awesome portable ball machine, the Slinger Bag. Head over to Slinger Bag to get all the bag features, pricing and availability in your country. Okay, let's cut to Marcus. Hi, Marcus. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm, I'm in the middle of a hard lockdown here in Melbourne, so just trying to stay sane. But um, yeah, given the circumstances, feeling chipper. Great. Well, this will probably air, I'd say, while you're playing your first round doubles match at the Aussie Open. So quarantine would have been over. But uh, tell me quickly about quarantine. We won't talk too long about it, but what's your routine like? How are you keeping yourself busy during the day? Yeah, it's difficult actually when when you don't you don't have a door to walk out of. Uh, but you know, just trying to stay on top of my physical routine. I mean, it's it's hard to stay fit inside a hotel room. But um, I've got a, a standing bike here. I've got a few dumbbells. Got a floor mat. Uh, so between that and a mattress leaning up against the wall to hit balls against them, um, I'm doing what I can. And then outside of that, you know, I've got a bunch of projects that I'm working on off court. Um, a few of, of which I think we're going to talk about a little bit in, in this chat. Um, so yeah, I, I have some some stuff that I can stay busy with, which I, I actually consider myself pretty lucky during this time. Nice. And are you working with a trainer to give you a program or do you just do go from your own experience? Yeah, so I was working with a trainer, both my doubles partner, Philip Oswald and I were working with a trainer in Austria through the off season. So I'm doing a lot of his exercises and then I'm really lucky because I've, over the years, I've done quite a lot of work with a guy called Sean Hughes back in New Zealand, who he sort of specializes in the TRX. So I have a TRX here, hanging it off the door and um, a couple of times a week, just, you know, giving him a video chat and he checks out my form and gives me the exercises. So um, I'm making it work. Nice. And using the mattress, that was something we saw popular in lockdown V1, where they were preparing up everybody's houses, uh, mattresses. But I did speak to Sebastian Duran during that lockdown, who is Dimitrov's fitness coach. And he was saying the importance of doing that for your attendance and to just to keep the impact going. Is that why you, you're doing it or is there another reason why you're doing it? It's mainly because of that. It's mainly because I, I have actually been through a two-week, very strict quarantine when I went back to New Zealand, middle of last year. And I know how bad your body feels afterwards. I know how hard it is to hit tennis balls afterwards. And, you know, when it's two weeks before a slam, uh, you don't want to take those sort of chances. You want to get back into it as quickly as you can. So I'm mainly doing it because I want to try and get as much strain and repetition through my arm as possible. 
uh, and the other reason is just pure boredom. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. And lastly, last thing about lockdown is you are big into music. Uh, Mark's one of the few guests we have on with a nice recording setup there with a mic and special software. Are you playing a lot of music? Yeah, I have been playing quite a bit. I've been, you know, when, I, when I'm, when it's late at night and my wife is asleep over in the States, I've been sort of going a little insane and uh, putting out the, the word that I'm taking requests for terrible old songs to play. So I've been putting out some Instagram stories of like the Spice Girls and the Backstreet Boys and just, yeah, having a bit of fun with it. Um, but it is definitely... It's a help to have a guitar with me here. It, um, yeah, it breaks it up a little bit. Nice. And tell me, who are your neighbors? Do you know who your neighbors are up and down, left and right? No idea on, on the left side of me, but directly through the wall on my right is my doubles partner. So we, nice. can, we can definitely keep, keep each other up at night. Nice. Very nice. Well, look, uh, can't, can't wait for you to get out there, get on court. But that's what I'd like to talk about today would be a few things. One would be your diet, your vegetarian. So... Interesting to know how you deal with that on tour, especially how you're dealing with it now. And when did you change over and how did you change over? How long did it take? Was it a small, was it a long transition or short transition? Two is your business venture, High Impact Athletes, which I knew nothing about until a friend of ours uh, told me about it. And I looked, I looked it up. Now, I didn't look up too much. I said I'd leave Marks to tell me all about it. So really interested to hear about that. I did see the ATP Tour had some articles on you as well. So that's really interesting what you're doing there. And thirdly is your role on the Player Council now that you're elected. So tell us what you're doing there, what you're hoping for. So really excited to hear about these things but let's start with let's start with your diet uh tell me when did you become a vegetarian and how did it all happen and why did you do it sure it's been i believe about three and a half years now i might have that wrong it might be a little longer vegetarian uh, well so I, I think the first thing to say is i grew up on a sheep and beef farm in new zealand so you know i was i grew up eating red meat you know seven to ten times a week that, that was you know well, exactly yeah um, so I definitely didn't have a vegetarian upbringing. Um, when I was in my early 20s, I was reading some philosophy paper, papers through university. Uh, I read an environmental philosophy paper that had a section on vegetarianism. And some of the arguments interested me, um, but I sort of dismissed it saying, you know, I'm an athlete, I need the meat, I need the protein. And that was that. Then, yeah, three or four years ago, uh, I was in Tokyo for the for the Tokyo event, and I went out to a sushi restaurant with Bruno Suarez and and um, a few of the other guys. And one of the guys knew the chef really well; uh, had been going back there for sort of ten years. So he was just ordering rounds for the table. Delicious sushi, having a great time. And then about four rounds in, uh, the order was chopped whale, and something something in me just completely rebelled at that idea, at the idea of eating a whale. And, you know, so I, I, I put my hands up. I said, I can't do this. Like, I, if I do this, I'm going to think I'm, I'm an asshole, um, basically. And so, so I, didn't, I didn't eat it. I copped a bit of flack from the guys. Um, and then walking back to the hotel that night, I, it really struck me how dissonant the idea was that I couldn't bring myself to eat a whale but earlier that day, I'd eaten a cow. Earlier that day, I'd eaten a pig. In, in the same dinner, I'd eaten different types of fish. And like there was a, even a beef tartare sushi. And I just thought, wh why is it that I can't eat a whale, but I can eat those other things? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I couldn't find a valid moral reason 
or a, or a valid difference between those animals. Like if they can all feel and suffer and experience joy, then I, I couldn't see why I would feel okay to eat one and not the other, except for tradition and what we're used to. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought that's not really a good enough reason for me. And so I started doing a lot of reading. Um, I started doing a lot of research online, watching a bunch of documentaries. And the further I dived into it, uh, especially on the ethical and environmental fronts, the more I realized I couldn't, I couldn't make excuses for myself anymore. Um, the biggest excuse that remained was I'm an athlete and I need to get a lot of protein for my job. Very, very valid thing, right? So I sort of made a deal with myself um, after Tokyo. I went back to Barcelona where I was living at the time. I had a two-week training period before some more tournaments. I said, I'm going to try to, to cook and eat vegetarian for those two weeks while I'm training. If I feel good, then that's that. I, I can't, that, that's the last barrier. Um, so I did that and uh, I actually felt great. And uh, yeah, haven't, haven't eaten meat since then. Um, and I will say, I think, I think it's been a really nice change in my life. Nice. And so you feel, do you feel better? I, w I wouldn't say that I feel better physically. I do think I, I feel lighter in my stomach. You know, it's, it's very common if you have, uh, you know, a heavy meat meal that you'll feel pretty heavy for a couple of hours afterwards. I don't experience that same sort of heaviness anymore, which is a good thing. In terms of, yeah, in terms of physical, I think that's the only real benefit I feel. I don't feel any less energetic. Um, the biggest benefit I've felt from it is just, I guess, like a, an, an overarching feeling that I'm sort of living my values. Like, I'm, like I've, I feel like I'm doing the right thing. And, you know, that's an intangible, but I, I do feel some sort of benefit from that. And are you completely would you ever say god i'd love a steak like you go home to your to your family and go i'd love some of that beef is there any of that is there a fight still <laughs> be, be like me with chocolate Ab I, absolutely I, I, I like chocolate every now i give it up for a while and then I'm like you know i just need that and so i could i think look i'm my wife has turned me a little bit more vegetarian uh, i would have been come from a meat background like yourself grandparents had farms and parents would have always had meat. I said meat for breakfast. Somewhere. I was heavily into weights at one stage and they were encouraging that. So really come from a heavy protein background. So I know what you're saying there, but there's no, I, I just, I could try and give it up and I do at times, but I just love to know how you like deal with the want for red meat every so often. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's definitely still there for me. I mean, my, you know, my treat when I went home, when I came home after, a, you know, a long trip overseas was my mom would cook up a rack of lamb, you know, like that, yeah. that was sort of what I would ask for. So, you know, I, I, I do love the taste of meat. Um, there are two, two ways that I combat that. One is just going back to the arguments that turned me vegetarian in the first place. And, you know, I'm, I'm someone who's, who's been a hunter in the past. You know, I've, I've shot deer, shot wild boar, skinned and butchered them and served them up for dinner. So I, I know viscerally what it's like to, for, an animal to go through uh, death and butch butchering, and that's a it's a it's a really in your face eye opening experience. Um, and knowing how eye opening and how how much that affects you when when you go through it, that's like the cleanest version of slaughter that you'll you'll ever ever come across. Like animals that get killed in slaughterhouses, they go through hell before they die. And so one of the things that I come back to is. I don't want to be a party to that. 
you know, at, at this stage, even though I do think sort of hunting for food is is a much more ethical version of it, I I just don't really have any interest in in taking the life of a sentient being anymore. Um, I feel like that's just sort of sunk in pretty deeply for me. And then the other side of it is uh, there are now these days there are actually some really tasty meat substitutes. Like I don't know if you've ever tried a good Beyond Burger, but I can tell you honestly that. In this little cafe in Barcelona, they had a Beyond Burger on the menu that is, I, I don't want to say the top burger in my life, yeah. but it's definitely top three. Like the, some of the substitutes these days are really delicious. So when I'm when I'm really, really hangering for, yeah. for a, a good slab of red meat, I just try and find a Beyond Burger and, and get my kicks that way. Yeah, I've always wanted to try one. I haven't tried. That's like the Impossible Burger. They're the same... Yeah, it's the Impossible Burger, but in my opinion, much tastier. I just, I think it tastes really, really good. I don't think they fit Ireland here and obviously haven't traveled in the past year. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm waiting to try, really excited. I did, funny enough, this week, I tried one of these vegetarian burgers. They're in the frozen section and I won't lie, it was not nice. It just didn't go down well. I'm never going to oh, try really? one. And but it it wasn't one of these newer ones that you mentioned there. So I look forward to my first ever Beyond Burger. But there's a lot more players now who are vegetarians on, on tour. And how do you find getting food on, on tour? Is it, you play the bigger events, so it must be a bit easier compared to playing the lower tier events. But do you struggle at all? or? It's a good question. Uh, and... The short answer is yes, sometimes. Sometimes I do struggle. Um, it's not so much finding vegetarian food, it's finding complete vegetarian meals. And often the idea of a, of a vegetarian meal is a normal meat meal and just remove the meat. Um, and yeah, it's that, that frustrates me because you know protein is, is such an important part of an athlete's diet. Uh, and in some countries where you would expect to be able to find really good food to cover all bases, it can be really hard for it. Like France is a, is a perfect example. Unless you're in Paris, it's really hard to find good vegan or vegetarian food that gives you enough protein. Um, so there are a few ways to get around that. One is I, I travel with a, a protein powder uh, from a company called Newzest yeah. that make a, an unbelievably good pea protein. Um, another way is, I mean, what I'm doing here, for example, in, in quarantine is, uh, I just bought a bunch of tempeh from, from the supermarket. So, you know, if a meal comes and it doesn't have enough protein, I just chop up a bit of tempeh and add it in. Um, so yeah, I, I won't lie. There are some extra difficulties about being vegetarian. Uh, but in my opinion, they're, they're well worth it. Nice. Nice. And yeah. And uh, tell me, have you leaned up? Did you, well, two questions. Did you lean up when you went vegetarian, like drop some body fat? And two, did you, did your strength dip at all? I, I think I might've leaned up slightly. Mm. Um, I didn't notice a dip in strength. And I will say that now I'm the, the heaviest I ever have been in my life on a, on a vegetarian diet, which might be more of a function of me getting old than anything yeah. else. But, um, but yeah, I, in terms of performance, I haven't noticed any dip, and I I can't say I've noticed a real um, a real benefit in terms of energy or anything. Yeah, just the only benefit, like I said earlier, is I feel like I can have a meal and go 
pretty quickly afterwards, which, which is nice. Nice. And if two, well, one more observation, another question, then we'll move on to high impact athletes. But one is, I only read recently, Tom Brady, famous NFL player, the best in history, uh, is, is a, I'm not sure if he's vegan or vegetarian. That will lead on to my next question, but he's been like meat free, even tomato free because it gave him stomach problems and which is interesting and look there's been loads of tennis players documented who are who are vegetarian or vegan or they're plant-based is is the other thing but maybe you can just end it by telling our listeners marcus the difference between vegetarian and vegan sure yeah so so vegan is uh, strict vegan as you don't use any animal products so that includes eggs milk anything that comes from from dairy um, and strict vegans even would go so far as not to eat honey or um, or use anything with leather on it. Um, but yeah, the, from vegan to strict vegan, there's there's a bit of leeway there. And then vegetarian is generally you add eggs and dairy into that mix. Okay. And uh, in, in my case, the the reason I'm not full vegan because I, I do believe um, full veganism is the strongest ethical standpoint. Um, for me, it's just necessity. Uh, I think if I didn't have the option to eat eggs or sometimes cheese on tour, I just I don't think I could do it. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it would just not not a taste thing actually, just like a nutrition thing. I just don't think I'd be able to to get enough variety and protein to um yeah to get it done. So um yeah, that's the difference. And it has been actually really interesting to see um the documentary, the game changes, the impact that that's had on the athletic community because. Since that documentary came out, I have had so many people come up to me and, and say, you know, I, I watched this thing. It's really interesting. Um, how, how do you do it? What, what are your tips and that sort of thing? And I do think it's really exciting that uh, more and more science is coming out showing the benefits of a more plant-based diet. So I do think we're going to see more of a trend towards less meat and more plants as, as the science gets better and better. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, there's many advantages documented out there and it's great to hear your side and how it has, you know, it's, it's made you, you've brought your ethical reasons and you live them, you eat them. So that's great. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, let, let's find out now about high impact athletes, which I only found out about recently. I didn't know anything about. Uh, and let's take it. I know nothing about high impact athletes. Tell us, what is it? Sure. So High Impact Athletes is a non-profit. Uh, it exists to channel donations towards the most effective, evidence-based, impactful charities in the world. Um, and to give you a bit of a backstory, um, there are a few different angles to this, but it's, it's built on the ideals of a thing called effective altruism. And effective altruism is basically a movement that is trying to figure out how to do the most good for every dollar donated. Uh, and, and weirdly enough, this is actually a very new idea in charity. Um, it seems that in the past, charity has been all about the heart, all about pulling on the heartstrings uh, and that giving is a good thing to do. And there's been very little effort put in to analysis and rigor and tracking the money yeah. through the intervention to the endpoint and actually getting really detailed reports on what the end results are. Uh, so about 20 years ago, a few philosophers, including a guy who was actually recently recognized as the most influential philosopher in the world, a guy called Peter Singer, they started writing about this idea of giving effectively. And on the back of that, a couple of hedge fund guys in New York wanted to give away a bunch of their money. And so they started calling up a few charities saying, hey, 
We want to give you a bunch of money every year. Can you tell us what's going to happen to it? And the answers they were given just did not get, make them confident at all. They just, you know, coming from a world where analysis was their day job, where they analyzed everything to the nth degree before they put any money into it, they just thought it was ridiculous that when you're literally giving money away, that the same analysis wasn't done or even more rigorously. So they started an organization called GiveWell. And the whole purpose of GiveWell was to evaluate charities and find the ones that did the best job in the world at what they did. And not only at what they did, they also went about finding the most important and impactful cause areas. Because if you find the best charity in the world uh, in the area of keeping a cricket pitch green, they might be a really cost-effective charity, but you know, keeping cricket pitches green isn't really yeah. <laughs> improving the world a huge amount. Uh, so, you know, finding the right cause areas is the first issue. And um, there are a few different things that go into that. There's the scale of it. How big is it? How big is the problem? How neglected is the problem? Because, you know, if if an issue already has hundreds of billions of dollars being thrown at it, then individuals like you or me can't really move the needle too much. Yeah. Uh, and then, and tractability, like... Uh, can can the problem be changed with an intervention? And that's actually a really important one too, because intentions can be great, but if if a an intervention is not changing or solving a problem, then it's pointless to, to put money towards it. So finding the cause area, finding the best charities in the world, and that's been going on for around 20 years. Now, I got involved in effective altruism in 2015. Uh, it was the first year where I earned enough money to put some savings in the bank. And with that sort of little bit of financial security, I had a really strong feeling that I wanted to give back. And I had no idea how. I, I'd, never, I'd never given to charity before. Um, so I just started doing some research online, came across Effective Altruism and a website called 80,000 Hours, which basically just gives career advice to people who want to do good with their careers. Absolutely blew my mind. I can't recommend that website highly enough. And... So end of 2015, I donated to some effective organizations. The next year, I made a pledge to donate 1% or more of my income. And then since then, have been steadily building up that percentage until, um, well, actually, at the start of this year, I, I pledged to donate 10% of my earnings to effective organizations for the rest of my life. Um, but the conception of HIA, High Impact Athletes, was last year uh, when the tour paused, when all of us tennis players were sitting on our bums, twiddling our thumbs, and I had a lot of time in my, on my hands. And I was thinking, okay, so I've I've pledged a percentage of my earnings, but how can I do more? And at that stage, I really didn't feel like I could up that percentage because I'd essentially just lost my job. Didn't know, you know, if I was going to be able to play tennis or earn money for the rest of the year. So the option that was left was advocacy. Like, how can I spread this message? Um, and that's when I landed on on starting something myself. And uh, as soon as I landed on that idea, it just resonated so deeply with me um, to try and spread this this message of giving effectively the idea that it it matters hugely uh, where we give. Uh, yeah, so I just I started reaching out to people in the philanthropy world, in the effective altruism world, and just getting feedback on this idea and trying to figure out how I could do it best. And uh, yeah, a, a few months later, I, I had built a website and um, and launched end of November last year. And so far, the response has been incredible. 
So I, I'm I'm just still a little bit lost. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, that was a that was a huge rant. <laughs> no, so so high impact athletes is a bit like obviously it's a not non it's non for profit. It's but your goal is to spread the message. Is it of effective altruism? Yeah. So high impact athletes at the moment serves two functions. The first is education. The first okay. is reaching out to athletes and reaching out to the general public and saying, hey, it's great if you want to give to charity, let's give to charity. And if we're going to give to charity, let's give to the most effective places. And that's a message that is really, it's very rare in the charity world. And I think it should be absolutely mainstream. I think we should put a lot of thought into where we donate and not purely be dictated to by our hearts. Okay. Um, so that's that's the first thing. And then the second function it provides is uh, it's a portal to the charities themselves. Okay. So on High Impact Athletes, we have the best charities in the world uh, in the cause areas of extreme poverty, climate change, and animal welfare. So if people are on board with, with this idea of effective giving, they can come to the High Impact Athletes website and through that website, send their money directly to those places where it can do the most good. And I think it's it's really important to say that uh, HIA does not touch any of that money. Uh, you know, we we are run at this point basically by me, um, just you know, in my spare time, and the money goes directly to those charities. Um, and yeah, so it's it's both educational and facilitating the donations themselves. Okay, so that that makes total sense. That's clear, and it's good that you are this facilitator. You're this middle person who connects people who want to give and donate in that positive way to these charities which uh this podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Cord FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at ASICS.com. ASICS Tennis have also just launched their new Cord FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS, visit their website www.asics.com. Where do you get the, the charities from? Is it is it is it from like these other these other websites? Uh, how do you vet the charities and they make your list? Yeah, really good question. So the the organization I mentioned a little earlier, GiveWell, they're considered the gold standard charity evaluator in the okay. extreme poverty area. So I take, they, they have a list of their most highly recommended charities. And to give you a, a glimpse into how stringent they are when they evaluate charities, they've had thousands upon thousands of applications to be reviewed um, by charities. And they've done hundreds and hundreds of really extensive investigations into charities. And I think they only highly recommend eight. Uh, and that's over a period of 20 years. So, so the charities that they highly recommend, you can be super confident that they are doing amazing things. And actually, you can know basically down to every dollar what the end result will be if you donate. Um, so it's GiveWell in the extreme poverty area. It's animal charity evaluators, which serve the same function in the animal welfare area. And for climate change, it's Founders Pledge. So I don't do any of the research. Those are the experts in the yeah. research. Those are the experts at vetting charities. And I take their research, which is 
it's super transparent and public. And I say, okay, you guys know best. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna follow your lead here. And I think um, it's it's important to say that th- there's there's a really common misperception about the difference between a good charity and an average charity. So when when people are asked uh, how much more effective do you think a good charity is than an average charity, the the most common answer is around 1.5. So a good charity is around 1.5 times more effective than a, an average charity. In reality, that number can be hundreds, if not thousands. So okay. you, you can literally get hundreds or thousands of times the impact just by choosing a good charity over an average charity. So this is this is why this message is so important. And this is why the work that those charity evaluators do is so important. And that's why I'm I'm only featuring the most highly recommended charities on HIA. Yeah, that's nice. Where you know, people buying for a book like every dollar that's donated is really, really going a long way. That sounds great. And what people have you uh, brought onto your platform or using your platform? Do we know any? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes, I mean some some big names in tennis have come on board already. Um, Stefano Sitsipas oh, wow. is on board. Milos Raonic, Kevin Anderson. Um, on the double side, I've got guys like Danny Nesta, Bruno Suarez, Rajiv Ram. Um, and then outside of tennis, there are a bunch of uh, Olympians, um, like world world champions. Uh, you know, it, the response from athletes so far has been amazing. And to be fair, this is, this is really just the start. Like I, I haven't done a huge amount of outreach just yet yeah. because, you know, I'm, I've been focusing on building the, the platform, building the organization. Um, so yeah, the next step is um, I'm actually in the process of trying to find a director of operations who can take the sort of the the organizational load off me. Mm. And so I can focus in my spare time on reaching out to athletes and, and trying to snag some of the biggest names in the world. Nice. So if there's anybody with experience running business, some sort of business, um, maybe uh, reach out to Marcus and there's, exactly. there's, a, there's a job going here if you're looking for a job, international <laughs> international role. And just a few questions. How do every money that comes through your platform goes straight to the charity, Marcus. How are you going to fund this moving forward when you're going to hire somebody and you want to grow it and maybe your team's going to be much larger? This is one of the really amazing things that I've I've learned. Uh, the effective altruism community is the most generous, helpful community I've ever come across. Um, so from the very start, being an absolute newbie in this organizational area, I just got in touch with everyone I could and asked a bunch of dumb questions and everyone was so helpful. So yeah, the, the effective altruism community, super generous. And there's actually, there are funds set up within that community that exists for the function of um, of funding uh, new organizations that they think have a lot of potential to do good to get them through that first hump. Um, so at the moment, I've I've got some grant funding from the Effective Altruism Infrastructure Fund, um, and that's sort of covering the, this very first step. And they've indicated that they they will be happy to cover a salary of a director of operations. Um, I don't want to put words in their mouth. That's still a hope rather than yeah. a, a certainty. But um, that's what I'm aiming for. Um, so yeah, in terms of funding, at least for the first few years, I want to cover everything through grants. Um, going forward in the future, I think uh, it might be nice to have an option of if people donate through HIA to say, 
have an option there of, do you also want to help cover HIA's operations? Um, and, you know, if, if we get funding through that, through from people who really enjoy what we're doing and, and uh, want to see us continue with it, then, um, yeah, that, that'll be great as well. Nice. And has tennis, your many years in the pro tour now? Oof, uh, I think I did my first year professionally, my first full year, maybe 2008. So, okay. So it was seven years before you actually saved a penny from playing tennis. Yep. <laughs> yes. Well, that's, that's probably quite a, that's a short term compared to some of the stories I've heard now. So, yeah. but it's probably average anyway, but has your experience playing tennis, traveling the world, meeting people, looking for money, obviously part of your job has been uh, sort of, well, I, I can't think of the word now, but you know, you're fundraising for yourself throughout your career. Has all that experience helped you now, give you the confidence to run a business? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I think that the most valuable thing that tennis teaches you, and it, and it teaches everyone who's tried to do it professionally, is dealing with failure, dealing with hardship, because no one gets gets to be a tennis professional of any level, I don't think, without dealing with a significant amount of hardship and failure and having to pick yourself up and go again and again and again. Um, and that's a, that's a skill that I think tennis teaches more than any other sport. So in something like this, where there inevitably are going to be setbacks, there inevitably are going to be people who say, no, I'm not interested, or people who don't like what I'm doing. Definitely tennis has helped me to deal with those setbacks and say, that's okay. How can I improve on that? How can I speak better? How can I deliver a better message? Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think tennis has helped and will continue to help. Nice. And last question on a high impact athletes. Do you have a funding goal for 2021? I do. My my goal for 2021, this might be a bit of a stretch, but I want to try and get a million dollars donated to the most effective organizations in the world. Brilliant, brilliant. And so obviously, I hope you've had a good start to January and I hope your team of players do well. The better your team of players do or the better your team of athletes do in the world, the better you do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And especially the, the ultimate goal of HIA is to have the athletes or anyone, the general public, uh, commit to a percentage pledge of yearly earnings. So, you know, if, if some of the people who have pledged go out and win the next four Grand Slams, then it's going to be a win for everybody. tens of thousands of people around the world. Yeah, great. And tell me, is it only, it's called High Impact Athletes, but you don't have to be an athlete. Can a business come on board? Can a general, a fan of a player come on board? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm my target audience is athletes because they're, they're who I have my personal relationships with and they have huge followings. Um, but all that matters at the end of the day is that more funding goes to those charities where it can do incredible stuff. Uh, so yeah, I welcome all comers, companies, individuals, institutions, clubs, athletes, whatever. Um, as, as long as, as you're on board with the message of let's give effectively, then yeah, nice. love to have you on board. Brilliant, brilliant. So that's, yeah, fair play to you. I think it's really nice. And, you know, you, you, you seem to be a lot, very passionate about it, which I think you need for, for this line of 
business, you could call it, or for this line of charity. So best best of luck moving forward. I'll be keeping my eye on it. And yeah, I, hope, I can't wait to see you grow and hit those targets. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I am, I am super passionate about this. I'm really excited about the potential it has for impact going forward. And I really do think this is going to be my my life's work. So you know, I've, I've got a lot of years ahead to grow it. Yeah, it's nice that you have a transition. I'm not sure how long more you plan on playing the pro tour. How old are you, Marcus? 32, 33? 31. 31, okay. So you could have 10 years left on the pro tour. Like, so you've, and that's 10 years of getting more people involved. It's 10 ways, 10 more years of connecting with people, getting them on your platform. But it's good to have something on the side that you're working on and growing, which will help you make that transition after tennis. So yeah, it's exciting. And yeah, let's yeah I'm not sure my wife will, um, will let me play for 10 more years, but, uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, I've, I've sort of loosely set a, um, loosely set the year of the Paris Olympics as, uh, when I want to sort of transition into something else. So yeah, a few years, a few years away, but you know, things are, things are always subject to change. So we'll see how it goes. Are the Paris Olympics on in four, three years or? Seven years, twenty twenty four. Oh, three years. Okay, so okay, you'd yeah. be still a young. You you won't even hit your prime by then. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so she'd be mad. Like, and where's your wife based? Well, we're we're sort of homeless at the moment. We were based in New York until COVID hit, and she actually just started a PhD at Cambridge. So we were supposed to move to London in September, uh, but that's obviously been put on hold. So. We're just sort of waiting for the world to settle down, and then uh, and then I think we'll be London based for the next three years or so. Okay, nice. So yeah, I, I don't know. You got to keep her in London, and you keep traveling. So extend that PhD. <laughs> but yeah, let's let's move on to uh, the player council. That must be really exciting. Was it always a plan of yours to try and get on the player council? Absolutely not. Um, the opposite, in fact, I, I <laughs> didn't really have, I didn't have any intention um, and I didn't have any expectation of getting on board. I mean, at the end of the year, the ATP sent an email around saying uh, you need to nominate two people from your group. And for me, that's one to 100 doubles uh, as as player council nominees. And I didn't nominate myself. I, I nominated two other guys. So I was quite surprised when I saw my name in the hat uh, the next week where they said, they got in touch with me and said, hey, you've been, you've been nominated. Now you need to make a decision. Do you leave your name in the hat or are you not interested? And at that say, stage, I said, okay, well, like, what's the harm in leaving my name in? I do think if I, if I somehow make it in, I have maybe a different perspective on things than a lot of tennis players. And I do have some things that I really want to try and push forward. But I had, I had zero expectation and I hadn't, I didn't speak to anyone about it. I do wonder actually if, you know, I'd, I'd been through December, I was reaching out to a fair amount of tennis players about HIA mm. and, and just saying, hey, this is this thing that I've started. I'd, I'd love to get your opinion on it. And, and if you're interested in being involved, that would be great. So, you know, maybe, maybe my name was just sort of appearing yeah. on enough people's phones to, to be in their minds. But yeah, when, when I got elected, I was, I was uh, astounded. And it's been a really steep learning curve. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot to there's a lot of information to imbibe and to sort of get your head around um, before you. Like, I still don't really feel like I can make strategic observations on on calls or anything like that. Um, but it's really interesting peeking under the hood, and I do hope that I can have a positive impact. You know, I, I don't just want to sit there and be a, a 
a quiet face on the CV. Um, put it on the CV. Yeah, and it's but it is you know it's it's difficult because I mean I think this is probably the most legend heavy player council ever. I mean you've got Federer, Rafa, and Andy Murray alongside you know Kevin Anderson and and Jill Simon and like there, there there's a lot of star power there. So it's not easy to sort of uh, stand up and speak when when you've got <laughs> guys like that sitting across from you. But but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and uh, try and try and keep in my mind that I have an equal vote at that table and just, uh, you know, push the ideas forward that I think are reasonable. How many players are on the council? There are 10. And there are, so there are two representatives for one to 100 doubles. And those two for the next two years are myself and Bruno Suarez. Nice. And can you vote for yourself at the start? With, sorry, can, you, can you elect yourself? So you said an email went around, who would you like to see on the player council? Can you go... Say, I want to be on it, actually. Good question. I'm not sure. I didn't actually vote for myself. Yeah, I know. I, I know you didn't. But I was just curious. Some people may <laughs> want to be on it, so they vote for themselves. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure you could nominate yourself. No. I think I think you could do that. And have you, how have you guys met? Have you had, is it a big Zoom call? Yeah, so I think the first official uh, Player Council meeting will be in the next couple of weeks. We had an, an impromptu one a few nights back. And before then, I'd just been sort of sending out messages, introducing myself to the people I didn't know well. Um, you know, like I, I I had, well, actually, I think you were there when I warmed Roger up one time at Indian Wells. And uh, Rafa, I had a passing knowledge of. We, we I um, got treated by his doctor when I was living in Barcelona. Um, but so those, those guys, I reached out to and just said, hi, I'm Marcus. Um, you know, I'm, I'm new on the council. Uh, Really happy to be here. If you have any advice or tips on on how to get things done, I'm all ears. Um, and also the board reps, you know, reaching out to them and getting to know them a little better and, and where they stand. Um, and then also the the ATP staff. Um, it's yeah, it's it's been it's been really fascinating seeing how much interaction there is between the player council and the staff. It's it really is quite quite close, uh, and that actually. That lends me confidence to to the ATP going forward because I think in the past there have been issues with communication and it seems from what I'm seeing now uh, they're really working on communication and it's and it's pretty impressive uh, from what I've seen thus far. Nice and so it must be great to a bit of a, a bit of a dream not for you because you lived that life but on a on a Zoom call with Federer, Rafa. Anderson, all these guys, you're like, who's who's the leader? In it's the, a little surreal, yeah. Who's the leader in, like, who would be the leader of the group who talks the most? And, um, I think there are there are a few people that that uh, are more vocal. Um, so I, I mean, I only have one call to go from, and I'd say one of the more vocal ones was Roger, actually, and he and he came, he had some really good ideas. Um, Gilles Simon is is a very vocal guy, um, and he has different ideas, which are also useful. You know, it's it's good to have a bit of um, to nut things out from yeah. two different angles. Yeah, and and I w will also say that uh, Andrea Gardenzi, the the current chairman of the ATP, he has he has a really strong presence. He does. He has a lot of charisma. He's got a lot of um, a lot of yeah pub public speaking sort of uh, nous. And uh, yeah, I, I'm impressed by that. Nice, nice. And what is what are you gonna? What are you gonna be fighting for? Well, it's my job to represent um, the interests of the one to one hundred doubles players, and 
I've sort of stretched that. I think it's it should involve more doubles players than that. I think it should be you know one to two hundred or, or thereabouts. Um, so thinking about uh, job opportunities for everyone there as as much as I can. Thinking about what makes things easier for doubles players, what cuts expenses, uh, while also at the same time balancing um, the cost to tournaments because the reality is any proposals we put for have to make sense on both sides. You know, they have to make sense for the players, but they also have to make sense for the tournaments. Um, so that's that's uh, a big part. And then for me personally, the other part that I really want to push is uh, some environmental initiatives. Um, this is something that I've tried to push as a player and, and have actually had quite a few chats with Kevin Anderson about this uh, over the last few years because he's, he's passionate about the environment as well. Um, but I am hoping that with a bigger voice being on the player council, I can really get some movement on on some stuff that'll make a big difference rather than stuff that makes a small difference. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm still learning the best mechanism for making a difference in, in that direction. Um, but that's something I'm I'm really going to put some work into. Nice. And you have referenced a tour as being a, a dirty tour from a global warming point of view, not from anything else. I know. So, yeah. Th- yeah. <laughs> that, one, that one caught some headlines. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it's it was easy to take that one out of context. Yeah. I think that I think what I said was it is a dirty tour, not by virtue of how tournaments are run, but just in the fact that we all have to fly to get to them, and flying flying is incredibly rough on the environment. Um, so you know, I I do think a lot of tournaments put a lot of effort into into being green and into being carbon friendly. I mean, I I speak from experience with the ASB Classic in Auckland that. Um, off their own bat, they actually uh, made all of their officials flying in carbon neutral and they put a lot of effort into other initiatives like that around the tournament. So some tournaments are putting in a big effort, but I think it would be a really powerful um, symbol or a really powerful statement if the ATP tour said, okay, we're going to make a commitment as a tour to be carbon neutral by 2025 or you know, at least like to offset our travel emissions um, each year, which is not out of the realms of possibility. And when, I mean, the, the more I've looked into the best climate change organizations in the world, you can get incredible bang for your buck uh, if you if you give money to the right place. So yeah, that's the sort of thing that, that I want to try and, and move the needle on a little bit. Great. Well, they... They've a they've a good guy on the on the council, so that's going to be exciting how that gets on the next couple of years, and it could be extended. Yeah. Uh, so great. So no, Marcus, thank you very much for jumping on. Maybe I'll end it with one last question, which we try to ask all our guests and especially players. Just an advice. We have a lot of young listeners here, and what's your advice for young tennis players who want to be professional and tour the world and see the great life that you guys have? That's such a tough question. Um, I think I think the best piece of advice I can give is find a way to love it. Find a way to love what you do. Find a way to love picking yourself up after you're after you've lost and you're feeling broken. Find a way to love the battle, love the pain of pushing yourself in training, love the 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 long flights <laughs> and the hotel rooms. I mean it's it's a it's a it's a task, but you know there has to be this sort of deep burning love of what you do. Otherwise, the the trials of a tennis career can overwhelm pretty quickly. So yeah, I think my biggest advice is learn how to enjoy, enjoy the sport and everything that comes along with it. Um, because only if you're enjoying it, are you going to be able to keep doing it for years. And it's going to take 
it's going to take years to, you know, get a career to a, to a place where you're enjoying all the, all the finer fruits. Yeah. The, the better tournaments and the, yeah, the slams and yeah, no, that's great. Thanks for that. I've one more. I just remembered, uh, uh, will you let Novak back on the player council? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's I think that's well out of my hands. I think um I've I've heard a, a few different stories there. Um I think the 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 basic the basic condition is okay, if you if you seed the PTPA then you can be part of the yeah, ATP. But I love yeah, it. we'll we'll see we'll see how we'll see how he goes. I like it. I like it. No, thank you very much. Uh thanks for jumping on. Uh I know this will air Aussie Open time or maybe week one or two or I'm not sure exactly when but I uh, wish a great few tournaments there uh, you and Philip have a, a great tournament you had some great results last year in the short year and yeah best of luck with High Impact Athletes this year and your role in the Player Council thank you very much thanks a lot Fabio really really enjoyed this chat thanks for having me on and uh, yeah hopefully hopefully big things to come in the future what a fantastic chat with Marcus and it's great to see all the good that he's doing in the world if you want to check out his website, head over to our show notes at functionaltennis.com forward slash podcast, where we'll have all links there. I'll be back next week. And until then, take care, play some tennis, stay healthy. Bye. Bye.